So, as I said, we're in this series talking about why we do the things that we do. It's important to step back every now and then and just say, why do we do this? You know, the church, the way a church is built, tells a lot about what it values. For example, the room we sit in was built because at the time we constructed it, we valued what we needed to do to reach out. It's a multi-purpose room. Uh, this room is used for everything from worship to weddings to upward. Uh, that's why we consider a valuable part of Trinity as flexibility to stack chairs. We really believe that in heaven, if there are chairs that need to be stacked, the Lord Jesus is going to look for members of Trinity to do that. And we'll say, we've got experience, Lord. You have prepared us for this very thing. But we built this room with that in mind. We wanted it to be a place that could be used for multiple things. And to God's glory, it has been and is being. Other churches that are more traditional have different aspects of their architecture, though, that communicate things. For example, a steeple. A steeple wasn't just something where somebody looked at the top of the church and said, you know, something ought to go up there. Steeples were built with a reason. They were built often for the sight lines that as a person looked at the church, they would be directed toward the steeple and their gaze would be pointed upward. And the steeple was also, in most towns, the tallest point of the city. So it became a way people could get their bearings. And of course, at the top of most church steeples was a cross. And so trying to communicate that if you've lost your way, look up into the cross and you can get your bearings. Another part of church architecture that uh, today we look on for beauty but was actually very practical was the stained glass windows. Uh, the colors of the windows would allow light to come in and that light would often be multicolored and it was to demonstrate the presence of God. Because when you read in the scripture, the, the, description, the scripture, the descriptions of the throne of God, it's multicolored. There are, there are rainbows of emeralds in this multicolored sensory experience. And so stained glass windows were to communicate, you're in the presence of God as you gather with his people. But very practically, the pictures that were put into stained glass windows were put there to tell stories of the gospel. So that people that came to church but couldn't read could look at the windows and see the gospel illustrated. The pulpit itself, the placement of it is meant to communicate something. Prior to the Reformation, when you walked into the church, most pulpits would be found on the congregation's left. So over where this cross is, is where the pulpit would be found because prior to the Reformation, it was the sharing of mass that took the center point of worship. However, with the Reformation, that changed. When the authority of Scripture was reclaimed, the proclamation of the Scripture took center place when the church gathered. So the pulpit was moved to the center place of wherever the church worshipped as a reminder that preaching of God's Word is to be the central focus whenever God's people gather together. Because preaching is to the church what the mouth is to the body. It's how food is brought in and how the body is brought to be stronger. Preaching is the vocal point of the church as we proclaim who we are, who we believe in, and where our faith lies. Preaching has always been central in the Christian faith. 
John Broadus was one of the founding fathers of Southern Seminary. And in fact, his textbook on preaching, although written in the 1800s, is still used today on the preparation and delivery of sermons. Broadus said this, and although it's small, it is up on the screens. He said, preaching is characteristic of Christianity. No other religion has made the regular and frequent assembling of groups of people to hear religious instruction and exhortation an integral part of Christian worship. You see, coming to preach is not found in man's ideal. It's not something man invented. Preaching comes out of the mind of God and out of the very character of God because preaching is in and of itself a Trinitarian exercise. God the Father, we are told, spoke through the prophets. When the prophets spoke, they were preaching the Word of God. We are told in Hebrews that when the Word of God came, it came in the person of Jesus Christ. John, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is the Word? The Word is that which is spoken. The Holy Spirit comes and the Holy Spirit speaks through the Word of God, speaking in the people of God. So the act of preaching comes together in bringing God the Father who speaks, the Son who is the incarnate Word, and the Spirit who speaks of God so that the, the preaching of God's Word is fundamental to the Christian faith. And because it is God's speech, it is God's speech that makes our speech necessary. We must speak what God has spoken. Therefore, the obligation to preach becomes paramount within churches that claim to follow Jesus Christ. Now such bold proclamations fly in the face of the common wisdom of our day. The fact that you and I gather here Sunday after Sunday and we devote the majority of our time to the proclamation of God's word flies in the face of the naysayers who say preaching is now dead. Many say preaching is no longer effective in reaching pe people with the gospel. They argue that preaching is too general to really be effective in communicating truth. They also argue that preaching is, is a vain attempt at reaching people because our attention spans simply are not what they once were. Microsoft commissioned an exercise, a, a research project over a long period to determine exactly how is the digital age affecting the attention spans of people. In the year 2000, they found that the average attention span of an American was 12 seconds. 12 seconds before our minds started to wander. Today, it's found that that has decreased to 8 seconds. Our attention spans are shrieking. And it made me wonder, should we have like a, an attention clock up here counting down so that every eight seconds we're warned, okay, refocus. You know what's quite humbling? If the American's attention span is for eight seconds today, do you realize that researchers have found out that the average goldfish has an attention span of nine seconds? <laughs> Something to think about. Others say we live in a video age. Everything today is geared toward the eye, not the ear. Everything's visual. Video, they say, has ruled out the proclamation of God's Word. In fact, that is part of the problem that has contributed to our attention spans. And For example, movies and TV shows, on average, the camera's shot will change every six seconds. 
So that every six seconds you're hit with a different angle. There's movement every six seconds. So that means I need to be a little bit more moving back and forth so that preaching truly becomes an aerobic exercise because we're used to things being visual. Others view preaching simply as a negative thing. Think about it. When your spouse, your husband, your wife looks at you and they say, don't you go preachy on me. Are they complimenting you? Oh, he's too preachy. Preaching is something that carries negative connotations. It's being something that is, dare I say it, nagging, pointing out flaws. Finally, I recognize today that preaching has come under, uh, under a cloud because many preachers are viewed with suspicion due to the very visible moral failures of many people who have led churches the credibility of all preachers has suffered so that now when a person stands up to preach there's almost this undercurrent of people thinking I wonder what they're really after preaching is simply not viewed as essential remember one of my professors at seminary that he was making one point but actually it pointed to how people view preachers he was trying to warn us preacher boys not to get the big head he was saying, when you're at that church and everybody's applauding you and saying how great you are, he said, I want you to ask yourself one question. If all the preachers in your town went on strike, and at the same time the garbage collectors went on strike, who would people want back first? It's kind of humbling when you reflect on it in those ways. But you know what's very interesting to me? It was, is that with those reasons that I've just given you while people say that preaching is dead, a Gallup poll from April of this year found that 75% of the people who attend church regularly, which is at least three times a month, say they come because of the sermon content where they attend. That what draws them to the church is what is preached Sunday after Sunday. Statistics also bear out that churches who have rejected biblical authority and have rejected the primacy of preaching have been declining steadily over the last 30 years. But churches who hold up a high standard, a high belief in God's Word and value preaching are continuing to grow and to reach people. It's almost oxymoronic that at the time when the world says preaching is gone, it is preaching that is bringing life by the power of God to the people of God. Paul would not be surprised at that. When you look at the book of 2 Timothy, which is Paul's last letter penned, he is in prison. And as Paul looks down the road and he sees coming up very shortly his impending death, he is writing a last will and testament, as it were, to his protege Timothy. Timothy has been mentored by Paul. Timothy has been left at the pa as the pastor at a place called Ephesus where Paul had invested his life. Now as he's finishing up this letter to Timothy, look at what he says in chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Last words to his protege. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead. And by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. 
For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching. But having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. And will turn away from listening to the truth. And wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. One clear final command. As a man sees his death approaching and he wants to ensure that what he has done continues on, he looks at this young man and he says to him, preach the word. And that one command, he is telling Timothy to join a long line of preachers who have preceded him. Paul is saying to Timothy, Timothy, Noah, according to 2 Peter, was a preacher of righteousness. Timothy, add your voice to that of Noah's. Moses was a preacher. You realize that in the book of Deuteronomy, we have two of Moses' sermons recorded for us. Moses was a preacher. And Paul is saying, Timothy, add your voice to the voice of Moses. Isaiah, when he had this experience of God in the temple and God's train, the train of his robe fills the temple. God says to Isaiah, preach the word. They're not going to listen, Isaiah. It's not going to make sense to them, but preach the word. And now Paul says to Timothy, let your voice echo that of Isaiah's. Amos and Micah were preachers who stood before the people and who a people that were turning their ears away from the truth of social justice. Amos and Micah say, let justice roll like the mighty waters. And here is Timothy hearing Paul say, let your voice join their voice. Jonah did not want to preach to his enemies because he knew the power of God's word proclaimed. And so Joah, Jonah tried to run from God till God sent him a fishagram to get his attention. And then Jonah shows up on the shores dripping with stomach juices. Now that'll get your attention. And he begins to preach. And the power of God's word is not mitigated by a prophet who wavered back and forth. The power of God's word brings repentance to a people. And now Timothy is hearing Paul say, let your voice resonate like the voice of Jonah. John the Baptist shows up. What's John the Baptist doing? He shows up in an unorthodox way wearing a three-piece suit made of camel hair. And he's there preaching. Timothy, let your voice ring with John the Baptist. Unless we think that Jesus was one who kept silent, I would remind you that in each of the Gospels it is emphasized that the Son of God, the Word incarnate, came preaching, preaching, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. No, you see, preaching is not a modern invention. Preaching is not something that came about because we were trying to fill time. Preaching came about because God commanded His word to be proclaimed. And notice the seriousness, the gravitas with which Paul says this is to take place. This charge to Timothy is not made simply calling an earthly audience to overhear what Paul is saying. Paul says, I charge you in the presence of God and Christ Jesus who is to judge the living and the dead by his appearing in his kingdom Timothy preach this is not merely an earthly thing this is something upon which you will give an account unto God you see at the time of Timothy and Paul a person who was skilled in rhetoric could earn a good living 
they could tailor their speech and find a, a, pet, a patron who would, who would subsidize their preaching and speaking. And so they could tailor the message to grab the, the ear of somebody that would, would be willing to pay and to subsidize their lifestyle. And Paul is saying, you are not preaching to win the ear of people. You are preaching because the ear of God is bent and hearing and listening to what you say. And because of that, Timothy, be careful what you preach. Look at what he says in verse 2. Preach, not your opinion, not what is popular at the time. You preach the word. This is the guardrail to keep preaching moving forward. This is where preaching is like a monorail that runs on one track and one track alone. And that is the word of God. What is this word we preach? Look up to chapter 3. As Paul is encouraging Timothy to continue on. Look at what he says to him in verse 15. He has admonished him to firmly continue in what he has believed. And then he says, And how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings. That phrase, sacred writings, is a technological term or a terminology that points to the Old Testament. He is seeing the sacred writings that you are acquainted with, that you have learned. And this is emphasized again in verse 16. All scripture is breathed out by God for, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and training in righteousness. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we see that part of what he is saying is, Timothy, preach the Old Testament. But do we stop there? Not at all. Look to chapter 2. Look to verse 8. Paul says to Timothy, remember Jesus Christ risen from the dead, the offspring of David. Look at the next phrase in verse 8. As preached in my gospel. Now what he's saying is the gospel that I proclaimed, I've preached Jesus Christ as the Messiah from David and as being crucified and resurrected. Now verse 9. For which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Now notice how he connects the word of God with gospel. He has been preaching the gospel. He is in jail for preaching the gospel. But guess what? The gospel that he preached is not in chains. It continues forth. So we see here that the scripture, the word of God that he is to preach is the Old Testament. It is also the gospel that we have contained in the New Testament. You see, this enhances our idea of what the gospel is. The core of the gospel is Jesus Christ crucified and resurrected. That is the good news. But the gospel impacts the way that we live. That's why when we read the New Testament, it goes beyond, never less than, but it goes beyond just saying Jesus crucified and resurrected. It's saying that since Jesus is alive, this is how you are to live. See, the gospel impacts all of our life. And he's saying, Timothy, as you preach the word, Old Testament and New Testament, you are pointing to Jesus as the risen Lord. You see, as a preacher, we are not composers writing our own song every week. A preacher is simply a mailman delivering somebody else's mail. And the mail we deliver is the scripture. Now, there's a model for doing this. This model comes from the Old Testament book of Nehemiah. It's going to be up on the screen. Nehemiah is a leader as the people are returning to Jerusalem. They've been rebuilding the wall. As Nehemiah is overseeing the construction of the wall, Ezra, a scribe, is overseeing the spiritual reconstruction of the people. Now look what happens here. 
Ezra opened the book. Now that's a reference to the Torah. They had rediscovered the Torah. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. So basically what that's saying is in the sight of all the people, for he was above all the people. They had constructed a podium. So Ezra could be lifted up. So in essence, Ezra says, open your Bible. Our text for today is Genesis through Deuteronomy. What do the people do? The people stood. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen, Amen, lifting up their hands. And they bowed their heads and worshipped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And Jeshua, Benaiah, Sherebiah, Jamin, Akub, Shephathiah, Hodadiah, Maasiah, Kelatiah, Azariah, Josabed, Hananiah, Peliah, the Levites, helped the people to understand the law while the people remained in their places. They read from the book, from the law of God, clearly. And they gave the sense so that the people understood the reading. That is the model of what a preacher is to do. The preacher takes the book, and a preacher is to explain the text, and then apply the text. That's called expository preaching. It is simply going through the scripture with the end of, by the power of the Holy Spirit, guiding a church in applying the truth of God's word to life. Now notice back in 2 Timothy, as he says, preach the word, there's a goal to which he is to preach the word. And I've lumped these two goals into very broad categories. First is this. Why do we preach the word? For course correction. Notice he says in verse 2, you preach the word in season and out of season. That's a way of saying whether it's popular or not, you preach the word. Here's your task. Preach the word. Reprove and rebuke. That's the idea of instruction. To reprove is to correct. It's used in 1 and 2 Timothy of speaking to one who is continuing in sin. To rebuke is to prevent an action or to bring something to an end. Now that's the uncomfortable part of preaching. Because when you preach the word of God, the word of God is truth. And the word of God being truth shines its light into the areas of our lives that are full of deceit. And that's what makes it uncomfortable. Because when we come face to face with the truth of Scripture, we recognize that the Scripture is alive and active and speaks to us exactly where we are. That's why it's compared in the book of Hebrews to a scalpel that divides the soul and marrow. And once again, in our culture it says if you preach and you confront people with sin, whew, that's a sure way to kill a church. But if we are committed to preaching the word of God and we are simply mailmen opening the mail, we have no other choice. A preacher would be derelict in his duty if he skips parts of the scripture that are uncomfortable and uneasy. Think how you would feel about going to your auto mechanic with your car. And you tell your mechanic, check it out from top to bottom. The mechanic comes back and he says, your car is great you're good to go you have got some genius mechanic because that vehicle's good you go out you leave you go about a mile down the road and you start to push your brakes and they don't work well you finally get the car to a stop and you turn around and you come back to that mechanic and your hands are up and you say what gives I just about died because the brakes didn't work you told me everything was good and the mechanic says oh well you know I didn't want you to feel bad because you'd let the brake fluid get a little bit low. And I like for my mechanics, my garage, to be a happy place. 
And I was afraid it would upset you. That's why I didn't tell you. Would you leave thinking, whew, I am so glad I've got such a kind mechanic. Or you go to the doctor. You go for your physical. And the doctor examines you, and at the end of it he says, my goodness, you have the body of a Greek god. You are an Olympian. You go. You leave there, and then you get back to work, and you have to climb two flights of stairs, and you get to the top, and you're thinking, I am about to die. You go back to the doctor and you confront him. You told me I was healthy. I'm, I'm, I'm having trouble breathing after two flights of steps. And he says, well, I knew your body was in worse shape than the Pillsbury Doughboy. But I was afraid it would upset you if I told you that there may be heart issues. And I wanted you to feel good about yourself. And so I thought it would just be better to say what you wanted to hear. Would you say, whew. I'm so glad I've got a doctor that cares about my feelings even though I may drop dead at any moment. No. If we would want a mechanic and a doctor to speak the truth to us, why is it that when it comes to things of the Spirit, we continue to want to live as if everything's fine? Part of a preacher's job, as it is said, is to bring conflict to the comfortable reprove, rebuke let the word do that now here's the, the other side of that it's not all negative at all in fact I would argue that reproof and rebuke are not negative things they're good things but notice what he says next exhort this is encouragement to preach the word is to encourage to urge the body of Christ forward I really believe that preaching at its best not only gives us food for our thinking, but it gives us a vision of the transcendence of God that satisfies our soul and reminding us that we are not living for this world alone, but we are living for the glory of the eternal, sovereign God. And that moves us, encourages us to go out into the world knowing that we are serving a kingdom that is not shaken, a kingdom that does not fade and allows us to live to make a difference. That's the power of preaching, the power of the Holy Spirit. On December 1st, 1955, little Rosa Parks took a stand by not standing that helped move along this issue of, of confronting the sin of segregation. What's often overlooked is that a few weeks before that, she had been to hear Martin Luther King Jr. preach, who preached a sermon entitled Transformed Nonconformist. She said that part of what encouraged her to make the stand she did was hearing the analogy that he gave in saying that Christians should not be like thermostats in our culture. We shouldn't go up and down based on what's happening. He said the church is to be a thermostat within the culture that adjusts things and that emboldened her. That's the power of preaching, to encourage. Those are the reasons why we give preaching a prominent place. It's found in the very character of God. His word accomplishes his purpose, so the preacher expands, expounds upon that word. Now with that foundation, I want to talk about what it is fair and right for you to expect from the pulpit. Congregation, you have the right to expect that the preacher is prepared. Earlier in this book, Paul said to Timothy, work so that you can present yourself as a workman. Study the word so that you can be a workman approved by God that doesn't have to be ashamed. I know, a preacher has that one job everybody looks at and they say, man, 
That preacher only works one day a week, and when he does, he works too long. The reality is quite different. Preaching's hard. That's why to prepare a sermon, 20 to 25 hours of preparation. You know, the apostles thought it that important. When they were confronted with the problem that there were widows not getting food, that's a big deal. God is compassionate. He wants widows to be fed. But what did the apostles say? They said, no, we've got to get some other people to take care of that because our priorities are preaching and prayer. Somebody else can take care of feeding. The priorities of preaching and of prayer. It's right to expect a preacher to be prepared when he steps into the pulpit to know that that man has spent time before God and in the Word. And I would tell you also the second thing, whether you attend Trinity or whether you're visiting today or whatever church you go to, you have the right to expect that the preacher explains and applies the text. If you visit a church and the preacher reads a text and closes his Bible and never refers to it again, that is a sign to go to another church. You have the right to expect that that preacher explains the text and shows and guides in applying it. That's why the preacher's told, do this in verse 2, with patience and teaching. This takes time, time, over and over again. Be patient and be te- as you teach. Preparation and explanation. But now the flip side of it is this. There are certain things that the preacher has a right to expect of the congregation. What should the preacher expect of the congregation? First is this. Be expectant that God has something for you. If we truly believe that preaching is God's ordained means of proclaiming His Word and the preacher is teaching the Word, it is right for you to expect that God has something for you in that message. It means engaging in. It means, Lord, speak to me this morning as Mark or as Nathan preaches. Lord, if I need rebuke, give me rebuke and let my heart be open to that. Father, if it's encouragement, there should be an air of expectancy whenever the congregation gathers to hear the Word of God. To say, Lord, what have you got for me today? Give me ears to hear. Along those lines, the second thing it's right for the preacher to expect of the congregation is to be willing to work. Listening is work. See, I recognize that for many people, this is the one time where you sit down for an hour during the week. And I know, I know people get sleepy. Listen, I've sat out there too. I know what it is to doze off. But I would also remind you that in the Bible, there is only one recorded instance. It's in the book of Acts, where a person fell asleep in the sermon. They were on the third floor of a building. Eutychus fell asleep. He fell out of the window, and he died. (laughs) Now you say, wait a minute though, Paul was there. Paul brought him back to life. I ain't Paul. (laughs) What I'm saying is, it takes work to be engaged. You start to get a little dry, set up. Move forward a little bit. You know, quite I wouldn't even be opposed if you had to stand up. Some of you are engaged by taking notes. Others taking notes isn't your thing. That's fine. But the issue is to say, I need to engage. 
preaching is not about entertainment. It's about engaging with the Word of God. And finally, I would encourage you this. Be discerning. Listen discerningly, not critically. Now, there's a difference between being discerning and being critical. The critical person sets out to look for something that is wrong. And that critical person is the one that wants to jump up quickly and say, Heresy! Heresy! To listen discerningly is to listen to what the preacher is saying, to think through it with the scripture, and engage with that. And to contact that preacher on Tuesday. You know why I say Tuesday? Because one, when a person is preached and they've given it their all, they're going to be tired. And so, just to be quite candid, coming up to them right after the service and saying, Pastor, in point three, sub-point A, when you mentioned the conjugation of that Greek verb, I'm not sure I followed you there. And Mondays are usually worse. I refer to it as the preaching hangover. Where you're just worn out. So write the question down. It's okay to say, I didn't understand that, or I'm not sure where you were coming from. Help me to understand. That's healthy. One of the things I'm so thankful of in preaching here at Trinity is this has always been an encouraging place to preach. Trinity has always encouraged its preachers to study. And I can tell you what that has meant so much to me, certainly in the last year with what's been going on in my family. But I can tell you where this really hit home for me, the power of encouragement happened when I was preaching through Revelation. And I want to be, once again, very candid with you. I was very nervous about preaching through Revelation. Because one, it is a hard book to preach. And I knew that in preaching it, I wasn't going with what is usually accepted as the most common interpretation. But I will never forget this one Sunday when I had preached. And I had once again I didn't preach well how it's normally heard but I, I ended up focusing upon Christ and him crucified and resurrected and a member of this congregation came up to me this person hugged me and he said you know Pastor Mark I, I disagree with you on your interpretation but I love hearing you preach about Jesus crucified and risen I love hearing you preach about heaven and I can tell you what that person will never know how that ministered to my heart on that day that's the power of encouragement even when you may understand the text differently and that is healthy you see in the end the purpose of the preacher and the purpose of the pew are the same and that's to glorify God that's what we're about to glorify his name and when we seek to glorify his name and we're willing to say Holy Spirit lead through us we will be amazed at the power God will bring to the pulpit even if it's just a very 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 brief statement Charles Spurgeon to this day is known as the Prince of Preachers his sermons are still published today the stories told and been verified of when the Metropolitan Tabernacle was being completed he came to do a sound check now this was a, a, a tabernacle that could seat 14,000 people and there was no microphones so he climbed up the steps into the pulpit that was elevated so everybody could hear. And Spurgeon stands, this, this man with this round barrel of a chest, and he belted out at the top of his lungs. He said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was satisfied as his voice reverberated through the wood and the timbers. He made his way down and was starting to walk out the door. 
when a workman yelled out to him, Mr. Spurgeon, Mr. Spurgeon. Spurgeon turns around and the man looks at him and says, I was up in the rafters working and I heard what you said and I want to know what it is to be saved. That is the power of standing and preaching the word of God. Let's continue to do that together. I want you to bow your heads with me. Father, it's amazing to think that you have chosen the foolishness of preaching to accomplish your purpose. But Lord, we believe in it. We believe your word is true and to the best of our ability, we want to continue to preach and to proclaim your word. Now, Father, I don't know what you're saying to each person here today. But Father, I believe that as we have heard and listened to this command of Timothy to preach the word, that you're working. So, Father, whatever the need is, I pray that during this time of invitation, you would be glorified. As Nathan and I are down here at the front, Lord, and as you bring people, whatever the need may be, Lord, grant us wisdom to seek you. That your name and your name alone is glorified.